episode 37 of War in the Book of Mormon, part 6.12, Nephite Eastern Campaign, Final Reconquest, Battle Analysis, Second Battle of Moroni, and Summary of the Amalekite War. Admittedly, that is a long title. The Amalekite War began in the 19th year of the reign of the judges with Amalekiah's contention and his pursuit of becoming king. He lost that effort according to the voice of the people and through the efforts of Moroni raising the title of liberty. Amalekiah fled the land of Zarahemla to the land of Nephi. Through intrigue, manipulation, and murder, he became the king of the Lamanites, and he sent an army to attack the city of Ammonihah that changed plans and attacked and was defeated at the city of Noah instead. Amalekiah incited hatred, apparently raised and trained a Lamanite army to capture cities, and weakened Nephite city defenses through subversion from the 19th to the 25th year of the reign of the judges. During this six-year hiatus of a sort, Moroni prepared his people with fortifications, clearing Lamanites from the wilderness, and founding, fortifying, and settling new cities. In the 25th year of the reign of the judges, Amalickiah marched at the head of his army down along the eastern seashore to capture six cities and attacked toward Bountiful, as there was also a revolt of Nephites who refused to fight against Amalickiah's army and sought instead to fight against their fellow Nephites. Amalickiah was stopped outside the city Bountiful by Teancum. Teancum assassinated Amalickiah, who was replaced as king of the Lamanites by his brother Amaron. Amaron, held in the east, attacked and captured four cities in the west, while also using subverted Nephites to facilitate the attack. The attacks in the west were stopped and then driven back as a couple of cities were retaken in the east. Just as the west was retaken, another group of kingmen rose up in rebellion, and Moroni and the governor Pahoran had to wage war to put the rebellion down and again control the land of Zarahemla. It was the 31st year of the reign of the judges as Moroni and Pahoran finally established control of the center and west of the land of Zarahemla and they then directed all Nephite attention on the east. The Lamanites were defeated at the city of Nephiha, and one last city remained, where all Lamanites were driven back toward, or toward which they fled, the city of Moroni. The Amalekiahite War lasted 13 years, included 11 campaigns and more than 39 battles, and countless engagements, skirmishes, raids, ambushes, and encounters covering three different theaters of fighting. Lamanite and Nephite armies probably marched thousands of miles in the conduct of all of these various acts of violence, large and small, that resulted in tens of thousands of people killed, wounded, captured, and taken into some form of slavery or unfree servitude. This was a massive war by any society's description and experience. Helaman tells us about the catastrophe of this war as follows, from Alma chapter 62, verses 39 to 41, quote, And thus ended the thirty and first year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, and thus they had had wars and bloodsheds and famine and affliction for the space of many years. 
and there had been murders and contentions and dissensions and all manner of iniquity among the people of Nephi. Nevertheless, for the righteous' sake, yea, because of the prayers of the righteous, they were spared. But behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war, and many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God, even in the depth of humility. Close quote. As we close out this war in this episode, I hope to properly summarize and conclude its significance, but I want to emphasize that it will be difficult to provide a better summary than the one I have just read from Helaman. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Retaking Cities, Strategic and Operational Context Success at the Second Battle of Nephiha strengthened Moroni's army and emboldened his warriors and also affected the Lamanite warriors who escaped the city of Nephiha, such that as the Nephite army approached the city of Lehi, the Lamanite defenders fled, as we are told in Alma 62.31. The movement of Moroni and his army toward the city of Lehi meant that Moroni was moving toward cutting off the supply lines of the Lamanites. It is important to reflect on the sequence of initial conquest by the armies of Amalickiah as they moved from one city to the next from south to north. Moroni, Lehi, Morianton, Omner, Gid, and then Mulek, as we are told in Alma chapter 51, verses 23 to 27. When I first discussed this sequence of the offensive campaign in episode 28, or part 6.3, it was supposed that this sequence represented a geographic order and that the cities taken first in the 25th year of the reign of the judges were those closest to the wilderness and border area with the Lamanites. By attacking Lehi in the 31st year of the reign of the judges, Moroni was moving toward the second closest city to the wilderness, separating the lands of Zarahemla and Nephi, and threatening the support to any Lamanite army further away from that border area. As we discussed in episodes 31 and 34, or parts 6.6 and 6.9, the Nephites under the command of Moroni had already retaken the cities of Mulek and Gid in the 28th and 29th year of the reign of the judges, respectively. This meant that the cities of Omner and Morianton still seemed to be in the possession of the Lamanites, as Moroni was marching on the city of Lehi, and the Lamanite warriors in those two cities were about to be cut off from the land of Nephi by Moroni's offensive movement. As Moroni attacked from the city of Nephi toward the city of Lehi, Lehi and Teancum were also active, as they must have attacked either Omni, Morianton, or both. The power of shock from the fall of the city of Nephi and the battleless collapse of the Lamanite defense of the city of Lehi was keenly felt as the Lamanites were fleeing until they all gathered in the land of Moroni, as we are told in Alma 62.33. The Lamanite king, Amaron, was also in the city of Moroni. Geographical Setting Location. 
the Nephite armies encircled the city Moroni and particularly defended against Lamanite escape to the south or east through the wilderness, as we are told in Alma 62.34. The city of Moroni was covered by the sea to the east and wilderness to the south and west. There is some small question about the record, as the original statement in Alma 50. 13 is that the city was by the east sea which meant that the sea should have been on the east side of the city yet in this latter event there is wilderness on the east there is not necessarily a conflict as mormon did not say the city was on the seashore but rather by the sea thus it is difficult to really paint a full picture of the local geography other than the fact that Moroni, Lehi, and Teancum effectively surrounded the city as stated in Alma 62:34, who was involved. This is a battle that featured all of the most senior leaders on both sides of the fighting. Nephite forces. We are told that the significant Nephite commanders in the east were all present outside the city of Moroni in the persons of Moroni, Lehi II, and Teancum. If each of these commanders, along with the governor of the land, Pahoran, all had their full armies present with them, then the Nephite numbers may have been as large as 24,000. That is a pretty large concentration of forces for the Amalekiahite War. Lamanite Forces On the converse, the Lamanite king Amaron was present in Moroni, and he had all those who had escaped the attack on the city of Nephiha, those who had fled from the city Lehi, and those who may have fled from the cities of Omni and Morianton. It is possible that such a Lamanite force may have been as large as 20,000. Technical Context I want to remind the listener of comments that I made regarding a javelin from episode 28 or part 6.3. I will repeat those specific comments here. Javelin Javelin is a weapon that oftentimes can be confused with spear. It is usually a hurled spear-like weapon, though some historic references make it seem like a held thrusting weapon. In the Book of Mormon, it only appears three times. The first is a list of Nephite weapons given in Jerem 1.8, and the other two are both in connection with Teancum. The clarification that the word javelin does refer to a thrown shaft with a tip designed for penetration is in the two stories of Teancum's assassinations of the Lamanite kings in Alma 51.34 and Alma 62.36. Tactical Events The Nephite armies were exhausted when they arrived at the city of Moroni. This was an exhaustion that included warriors and leaders and led to a decision to not develop a plan of attack. It seems that Moroni, Lehi II, and Teancum communicated before arriving or immediately upon arriving in the vicinity of the city Moroni so that they could coordinate the cordon of the city. Beyond that decision, it seemed that the key leaders simply wanted to be able to rest and make any further decisions in the morning. I quote from Alma chapter 62, verses 32 to 34. And it came to pass that Moroni and his army did pursue them from city to city until they were met by Lehi and Teancum. And the Lamanites fled from Lehi and Teancum, even down upon the borders by the seashore, until they came to the land of Moroni. And the armies of the Lamanites were all gathered together, insomuch that they were all in one body in the land of Moroni. 
Now Amaron, the king of the Lamanites, was also with them. And it came to pass that Moroni and Lehi and Teancum did encamp with their armies round about in the borders of the land of Moroni, insomuch that the Lamanites were encircled about in the borders by the wilderness on the south and in the borders by the wilderness on the east. Close quote. Teancum did not want to wait. He clearly saw an opportunity for immediate action and the possibility for that immediate action to result in real and significant change. I discussed the perspective on the benefit of targeted assassination in episode 28 or part 6.3 when Teancum killed Amalekiah. However, there is benefit in reiterating some of these issues here. Tribal warriors are loyal to a different set of icons than our soldiers. They tend to be more loyal to individuals than to concepts, and this is especially true if those people have been successful and represent a source of resources. Amaron was all of these things. His position in the Lamanite kingdom seems to have been supreme. As we have discussed in preceding episodes, Amalekiah could not conduct offensive operations on a large scale without consensus or agreement of the tribal elders or leaders. The operations launched by Amaron seemed to have been initiated and ordered by him. It is common that as a war progresses, that the senior executive gains more centralized control and dictatorial powers than he might have in peacetime. Though Mormon leaves no definitive statement about Amaron's political control or lack of it within the land of Nephi, there seems to be a record of his ability to unilaterally dictate more of what needed to be done than that exercised by his brother. The observations about Amaron's authority in the Lamanite kingdom would imply that he held a more significant position than that of his brother in the Lamanite world, and therefore he would have been a more attractive target for a person like Teancum. Teancum knew the positive impact of his previous assassination and must have seen the fact that there was a tremendous opportunity for great gain in a similar situation at the city Moroni. I now quote from Alma chapter 62, verses 35 through 37. And thus they did encamp for the night. For behold, the Nephites and the Lamanites also were weary because of the greatness of the march. Therefore they did not resolve upon any stratagem in the nighttime, save it were Teancum, for he was exceedingly angry with Amaron, insomuch that he considered that Amaron and Amalickiah his brother had been the cause of this great and lasting war between them and the Lamanites, which had been the cause of so much war and bloodshed, yea, and so much famine. And it came to pass that Teancum in his anger did go forth into the camp of the Lamanites and did let himself down over the walls of the city. And he went forth with a cord from place to place insomuch that he did find the king and he did cast a javelin at him, which did pierce him near the heart. But behold, the king did awaken his servants before he died, insomuch that they did pursue Teancum and slew him. Now it came to pass that when Lehi and Moroni knew that Teancum was dead, they were exceedingly sorrowful. For behold, he had been a man who had fought valiantly for his country, yea, a true friend to liberty, and he had suffered very many exceedingly sore afflictions. But behold, he was dead, 
and had gone the way of all the earth. Close quote. Mormon twice states that emotion, anger, was a driving motivation for T. Ancom's action. It is unclear why his anger manifested itself now, though there is a great room for speculation. Regardless of the reasons, his anger clearly clouded his decisions as he conducted himself differently than in the assassination of Amalekiah. The first difference was that Tiancum seemed to operate alone in the second attack. This may have meant that the servant who accompanied him was dead, possibly in a recent battle, which may have generated the anger, but this is entirely speculative. The lack of a second person would have placed greater stress on Tiancum, as he had to both search for the king and provide his own personal security. Second, Tiancum did not know where Amaron was. He had to search for him from place to place. Third, Tiancum failed to prevent the king from awakening his servants. This was clearly the most significant difference, as this was the primary cause for Tiancum being pursued and killed. The fact that Tiancum used a javelin rather than a sword or other weapon speaks to the importance of that weapon in the Nephite-Lamanite method of war. As noted previously, the probable manner of fighting included missile exchange followed by melee. This missile exchange may have been stones hurled by slings, arrows shot by bows, or javelins thrown by warriors. Tiancum conducted his attacks on both Lamanite dissenter kings the same way, missile attack as the initial means of engagement. Tiancum succeeded in killing Amaron, but he himself was pursued and killed by the Lamanite king's servants. It is likely this happened as Tiancum was alone and forced to conduct both the attack and his own security. It is unclear when in the timeline that Moroni and Lehi too were made aware of the death of Tiancum. It is possible that they were informed by the Lamanites themselves, as they may have bragged over killing such a powerful commander or even hung the body or body parts for everyone to see. It is also possible that the knowledge spoken of by Mormon may have come after the battle when a successful Nephite army may have discovered his body in the city. The most important element is that the record is unclear. The supposition proposed here is that his body was displayed, and this fueled Nephite anger prior to the battle. What happened after finding out about Tiancum is given in a single verse in Alma 62:38. Quote, now it came to pass that Moroni marched forth on the morrow and came upon the Lamanites, insomuch that they did slay them with a great slaughter, and they did drive them out of the land, and they did flee, even that they did not return at that time against the Nephites. Close quote. Mormon gave no detail on what I labeled the Second Battle of Moroni. He uses phrases like marched forth and slay with great slaughter to convey the battle itself. He followed that with drive them out of the land. This was an offensive attack by Moroni and may have actually been an assault of the city, although this is unclear. Moroni clearly launched a coordinated attack that forced the Lamanite army, which was very large at this point, to flee the land. It was probable that the events described in this single verse occurred over a period of time rather than in a single day, 
The attack on the city of Moroni was probably a single event, though not necessarily conducted in a single day, and within that battle the Lamanite army broke. The pursuit of the Lamanite army probably occurred over a longer period of time as well, days, and maybe weeks. Significance The Amalekiahite War ended with the defeat and fleeing of the Lamanite army from the battle at the city of Moroni. This was also at the end of the 31st year of the reign of the judges, more than 12 years, almost 13 years really, after the beginning of the conflict with Amalekiah, which began in the early part of the 19th year of the reign of the judges. Moroni then began the process of rebuilding the Nephite defenses and establishing order, which had been disrupted by the nearly constant fighting. He placed his emphasis on those areas most exposed to potential Lamanite attacks. After doing this, Moroni returned to Zarahemla, as we are told in Alma 62:42. Moroni transferred command of the army to his son, Moronihah. We will discuss Moronihah a great deal more in the following episodes. The challenges of war must have inflicted a heavy physical toll. Moroni had been injured and he and Helaman too had suffered significant deprivations of food and physical comforts. Both men died soon after the end of the war. Helaman, in the 35th year of the reign of the judges, with an undetermined age, and Moroni in the 36th year of the reign of the judges. Moroni was probably in his mid to possibly his late 40s, as it is unclear exactly when he assumed command of the Nephite armies. That is a relatively young person, even in the ancient world. The Amalekite War cost the Nephites much, but it was also one of the most formative experiences of Nephite and Lamanite military culture and behavior, as well as providing the religious lessons so important to Mormon. Lessons learned, spiritual. There are two spiritual lessons from this battle that I want to focus on. 1. Anger creates a fog. The emphasis on Tiancum and his anger and his failure to conduct things the same way speaks about how anger can cloud the counsel of our own experience or of the Holy Ghost. 2. If you go into the camp of the enemy, always take a companion. To me, the juxtaposition of the stories of Tiancum's special operations assassinations is a fabulous lesson for every missionary, every parent of a missionary, and every leader of a missionary. The biggest difference that most people focus on between the killing of Amalekiah and Amron is that Tiancum was angry during the second event. I think that this emphasis is wrong. I mean, he was angry, and that is an important point, but the biggest difference is that the second time Tiancum was alone, no companion. To me, this screams to all of us, and especially to missionaries, never leave your companion, as this only generates greater danger. I want to end this episode with a summary of the Amalekiahite War as it is recorded in the Book of Mormon. What is Mormon showing us through this war? If you remember, I have said that I believe that Moroni provides three great sermons in the Book of Mormon, the First Battle of Manti, the Amalekiahite War, and the Gadianton Robber War. Each of these three great sermons increases in scope and scale and decreases in technical and tactical detail. The next part of this podcast series focuses 
on the Gadiant and Robber War. I want to close out this great sermon with a look back on what is being shown. Summary. The Amalekite War includes at least 39 battles that are mentioned or inferred. Of those battles, there are 16 that are discussed with some level of detail, meaning that we have more than one verse of text on lead-up, events, and or consequences. In the past 17 episodes, we have discussed each of those battles, which are 1. Battle of Anidah, where Amalekiah gained control of the armies of the Lamanites. 2. Second Battle of Ammonihah, where the Lamanite armies turned away from fear of the fortifications. 3. Second Battle of Noah, where Lehi too defeated the Lamanite armies who turned away from Ammonihah. 4. Battle of Narrow Pass, where Teancum defeated his first opponent, killed Morianton, and returned the people of Morianton to their lands. 5. First Campaign of the Kingmen, where Moroni defeated those who refused to take arms in defense of Nephite lands and enter a covenant supporting the title of liberty. 6. First Battle of Bountiful, where Teancum stopped the Lamanite army and later assassinated Amalickiah in his tent. 7. Battle of Antipas's Fall, where Helaman II and his stripling warriors demonstrated tremendous courage that inspired a Nephite victory against the largest Lamanite army in the West. 8. Second Battle of Cumani, where Helaman II laid successful siege through blockade. 9. Third Battle of Cumani, where Helaman II defended Cumani against a Lamanite reinforcing attack with the help of those sent to guard prisoners. 10. Third Battle of Manti, where Helaman II captured Manti through a stratagem. 11. Third Battle of Mulek, where Moroni captured Mulek through a stratagem involving Teancum and Lehi II. 12. Second Battle of Gid, where Moroni freed Nephite prisoners by casting weapons into them. 13. Second Kingmen Dissension Campaign, where Moroni partnered with Pahoran to regain the Nephite lands under the authority of the chief judge and governor. 14. Battle of Chance Encounter, where the armies of Moroni and Pahoran defeated the Lamanite army, presumably coming to reinforce the kingmen at Zarahemla. 15. Second Battle of Nephiha where the armies of Moroni conducted an escalade of the city walls and attacked from within and without the city. 16. Second Battle of Moroni, where the armies of Moroni, Lehi II, and Teancum encircled the city, and Teancum assassinated Amron as he had Amalickiah. In those 16 battles, the primary defeat mechanism was surrounding the enemy eight times. That is 50% of the time. That is not normal in military history. In fact, it is aberrant. One possibility is that Mormon placed emphasis on surrounding the opponent through some sort of poetic license. Another possibility is that there were a great many more battles, and these are the ones upon which Mormon focused. For example, maybe these eight are the only ones of the 39 that involved surrounding the enemy, or about 20% of the time. By the way, 
even that is historically a large percentage. But there may have been many more battles and engagements than the 39 of which we have some reference or inference. Of course, a third possibility is that Moroni and his peers just did accomplish this highly unusual tactic over and over again. Regardless of which, the point is that Mormon is making a very important point that he will continue to make even in the less detailed battles to come. That important point is to surround your enemy. I want to remind the listener of other key lessons that came out again and again and that I regularly commented on in the previous episodes. Careful planning. Arms and armor. This is the personal element of creating, providing, and wearing protection. Fortifications. This is the collective element of creating, providing, and using protection. Use of spies. Understand the enemy. Covenants bind units. Be in the right place. Strengthen the army. Head the enemy or block the enemy's progress. Go against the enemy in the strength of the Lord. Remind the army of its purpose. Careful selection of where to put the strongest servants. Act decisively when opportunities present themselves. Take a companion. Covenants matter in that covenants allow repentance and that covenants provide strength. This sermon is of value, not just to understand details of military history or strategy, but to understand how to live, how to lead, and how to fight for the eternal salvation of the children of God. Mormon's metaphor, how does this battle and war support it? The fighting leading up to, associated with, and in and around the city of Moroni is a fitting bookend to close out the Amalekiahite War, in that this battle captures a lot of the key elements listed above. The obvious element of this is that this battle takes place at the city named after the Nephite commander. The war didn't start with a fight in or around this city, but it ends with Moroni. How tremendously fitting. Preparation. It is unclear how much coordination happened leading up to this battle. We are told that the armies of the Nephites pursued the Lamanites toward the city of Moroni in Alma 62:32, and it implies that Moroni, Lehi II, and Teancum had united their forces some time before arriving at the land around the city Moroni. If so, this was a battle where the surrounding was both planned and organic in that the armies simply flowed into place as they arrived in the area. Encirclement only happens with planning and preparation. Teancum's adventure seems to have been a lesson in hasty action rather than a planned activity. I imagine that his companion had previously been killed, and that was why Teancum was so angry. Regardless of the accuracy or inaccuracy of this supposition, it is clear that Teancum had to search for Amron, and that he did so alone. Neither point gives a sense of preparation. I like Tiankim a great deal, but I believe that his final action failed in part as a result of poor preparation. The Amalekite War was won because Moroni, Lehi II, and Tiankim in the east, and Helaman II in the west regularly prepared their forces 
with weapons, armor, and strategy. Even though the Lamanites could take cities, they failed over and over again to innovate in the face of contact with the enemy. They did not prepare their forces after taking the cities. The Nephite commanders won at the beginning, cleared the wilderness, built new cities, and fortified positions throughout the Nephite lands, then lost ten cities in the east and west, and they re-prepared their armies through new efforts in training, equipping, arming, protecting, and strategizing. Preparation isn't a beginning thing. It is an all-the-time thing. That is a lesson from this sermon. Covenants. Encirclement in the Book of Mormon always implies covenants in that all commanders had to agree and coordinate and work in concert. Tianka may have felt obligated to do what he did out of a sense of loyalty to an oath. Moroni and Lehi II's final attack against the Lamanites were probably done in part out of a sense of loyalty to Tiancum's memory. Regardless of any accuracy regarding these supposed motives, the Nephite commanders, including the chief judge and governor, acted out of loyalty to their oath and covenant to the title of liberty. The very beginning of this war involved the covenant associated with the title of liberty. There were repeated references to covenants from opponents, between friendly peer and superior subordinate commanders, and between those who fought and those who judged and governed. Covenants are what give us resolve, Hold us to our plans and preparation, and give us the surety that the battle is over. Unity. There is unity in the encirclement, unity to the title of liberty, unity in the poetry in the final battle happening at the city named Moroni. That is physical, conceptual, and poetic unity. It can't get any better than that. The Amalekite War began when one man convinced many other men and women to reject the voice of the people and to seek the overthrow of the established government that resulted in bloodshed and the flight of the leadership of the insurgent leader. Amalekai is the personification of disunity. Not only was he a deceiver, but both he and his brother came to seemingly believe his deceptions. Moroni unified the people through acceptance of a common statement of belief. He compelled people to defend that set of beliefs through military action when attacked. He made sure that those who fought enjoyed the unified support of the government and society they protected, and when that support faltered, he called it out and demanded greater support. At the end of the war, the land and the people were again physically and conceptually united behind the common statement of beliefs. Conclusion Mormon concludes the Amalekite War by expressing the power of consolidation of cultural strength. The ultimate victory of this war came when the Nephites defeated their internal opponents and focused all efforts against the external ones. This war also ended with the ending of a generation of service. Authority for religious and military aspects of the Nephites transferred from one generation to the next. As this episode concludes, so ends the discussion on the era of Moroni. He died within just five years of the end of the war he worked so hard to prepare for and lead in. He handed the leadership of the army to his son after reordering the defense of the state, and then he retired to his home in Zarahemla. 
When he completed his service to his people, the Nephite state was protected, with the forts and armies placed in positions to prevent another Lamanite invasion. He handed to his son a legacy of strength and leadership competence. Moroni also left a legacy of lessons to the reader of the Book of Mormon. He serves as the ideal of how each of us needs to wage our personal and collective battles against our adversaries. His fundamental lesson is that preparation and fortification in easy times or times of calm and peace prepares people and nations to deal with challenges when they come. Our next episode begins the next major sermon of the Prophet Mormon, the Gadianton Robber War. This was the longest and most complex war in the Nephite pre-Christ history. We will start with events that seem to be very much like the era of Moroni, but were a preface of the rise of secret combinations and the destruction of the Lamanite and Nephite states as cultures independent of murder and greed. Over the next several episodes, we will see a transformation from war between Lamanites and Nephites to war between Gadianton robbers and the gospel culture, and even wars between various bands of Gadianton robbers. The very next episode discusses the transitions that were taking place between these two great sermons of Mormon, the Amalekiahite War and the Gadianton Robber War. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.